<clears throat> All right. Uh, Heavenly Father, as, as we start looking into um, the two books of Peter today, we pray that you would help us to learn from him. Um, we, we can identify with him so readily. Um, someone who felled and someone who didn't always um, speak at the wisest times or in the wisest ways, but we see how you transformed his life and made him into a man of whom the world wasn't worthy. We pray that you would do the same for us as, as we study these books and we hear not only Peter's words, but your words through him. Um, give us ears to hear this morning, for we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the book of First Peter, um, there is a lot of very fun stuff that we could get into, but we won't because, you know, we're behind. Maybe, maybe we can do like kind of one more shorter, uh, not an entire class period, but maybe one more kind of shorter thing. Uh, you guys haven't read Peter yet, have you? No. So I guess we'll do that. Um, you read First Peter this weekend and do the whole like um, question, interesting thing that you did for James. And then we'll spend maybe half the class period on Monday doing that, unless I rabbit trail too hard. Because there, there is a lot of weird stuff in this book. Um, there's the whole thing about like... Um, Jesus's descent in first Peter three. Is it actually about that? Is it not about that? What's going on in first Peter three? Why does Peter say baptism saves you? Uh, that's a big one in first Peter three. So, um, there are some kind of weird, hard statements throughout this book, but just because of time considerations and because it is important to me to go and spend a lot of time in revelation, uh, we got to jump through some of this stuff a little bit quicker. Um, Peter, First uh, Peter is written to churches in five areas. If you look at First Peter one one, he writes to what he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion. Does that sound familiar? By the way, dispersion. Remember James. James writes to um, the twelve tribes in dispersion, and here Peter is addressing. Um, the elect exiles of the dispersion. So again, he's, um, and, and the churches that Peter is talking to are primarily Gentile churches. Look at where they're located. Pontus, Galatia. What, where, what do we know about Galatia? Galatians. Galatians. And it's primarily a Jewish or Gentile church. Gentile. Um, so Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia is Turkey. So uh, that is uh, pretty far northwest of Israel, so very, um, very Gentile. Asia, going to be a lot of Gentiles there, and, and Bithynia. So, um, you know, he is, uh, like James, he's writing to, um, James says to the 12 tribes in dispersion. Peter says to the elect exiles of the dispersion. It's taking language that traditionally has belonged to Israel, but it's applying it to the church as a whole, Jew and Gentile. Uh, and, and again, it's kind of equating the way that um, Judah was once exiled among the nations. Now the church has been exiled among the nations, um, but this is to bring the knowledge of God and the, um, and the gospel to them. Um, the book of First Peter primarily deals with the fact that Christians are terribly, terribly, terribly suffering. Very badly. They are persecuted on every front. This is written not long before Peter will die. So persecution has ramped up 
and these Christians are hurting badly. And the book of 1 Peter is meant to give them some, some guidelines for how to suffer well, and it's meant to give them encouragement. As you're suffering, here are truths that you can remember uh, that can help you cope and get through it. And even though, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you and I don't face persecution, not like they are, and, and probably not at all, uh, the book of First Peter does still speak to us because we are people that go through different trials, tribulations. And so the truths that Peter gives to sufferers are very applicable to us as well. Um, somebody read chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Yeah, as these believers are suffering and maybe even facing persecution and death, the very first thing that Peter reminds them about is that they have an inheritance kept for them in heaven that is imperishable. What does that mean, imperishable? Not perishable. Okay, not perishable. What? It doesn't expire. Doesn't expire. It won't go bad. It's undefiled. What does that mean? It's perfect. It's perfect. It's unfading. What does that mean? Yeah, it's never going away. It's never going to decrease in glory. Um, They have a heavenly inheritance that God is keeping for them and which they're going to receive at the last time. They have a living hope because Jesus suffered and he died, but he's been resurrected and Christ is their treasure. He is their reward. And what has happened to Christ is what will happen to them. They'll be raised as well. So Peter starts off right off the bat by reminding them of the afterlife. He reminds them that heaven is theirs, the resurrection is theirs, the inheritance is theirs, and this uh, future hope can ground them in their present sufferings and trials. In verse 6, he makes this connection more clear. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, moving on from there, um, one of the really big parts, one of the really big points of chapter 1 that he's going to to really emphasize is... um, Have you ever been in a situation where you thought to yourself, I just can't do it? You ever felt that way before? Been in a situation and you think, I just just cannot do it. Well, he's writing to a group of Christians who are facing some very hard trials, very hard tribulations. He reminds them of their future hope. He reminds them of Christ uh, and, and that he is alive, that he is reigning, that he is ruling. He reminds them of how God is working in them through these trials. But in um, chapter one, really kind of the last half of it, which you'll see as you read this weekend, uh, he starts to highlight how, you know, maybe, maybe there's some doubt that's in your mind. I don't know if I can do this. He does something really interesting. If you look at verse um, 15, it says, as he who called you is holy, 
You also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He quotes there from the Old Testament. And Peter notices something um, that is really good for us to uh, emphasize and, and kind of uh, kind of hit on for a little bit today. He quotes from Leviticus. If you guys can think back to last year, the refrain of Leviticus is, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. What would you say that is? You shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. God is giving you a what? He's giving you a command. You shall be holy. Because I am holy. We would read that like a command. Be holy. And in Hebrew, it can read that way. It can read as a command. But think about it for a second. If I, if you look at this, you shall be holy. How else could you read that? I will make you holy because I'm holy. Yeah, you could read it as a command, which um, we, t- we call that in English an imperative. You guys know imperative sentences, right? That's sentences that tell you to do something. Um, there's also statement of fact sentences. Do you remember what those are called in English? It starts with an I. In indicative. indicative. You could read this as an indicative, which is just a statement of fact where God is looking at you and is saying, you shall be holy. One day, you will be holy. And I think that was a well. There was a well somewhere in the school, just walking around on all four feet. Um, that's funny because wells don't have feet. All right, so um, you you could you could read. So as you're reading through Leviticus over and over again, the book of Leviticus says, "You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." And you could read every time that that statement comes up. You could read it one of two ways. The text allows you to read it one of two ways. You could read it. God is giving me a command to be holy. Or you could read it as God looking at his people and looking at you saying, you will be holy because of the work that God will do. What Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 1 is Hebrew does not really, like um, like if you just look at a verb in English, um, can you if, you, if I just like put the uh, word right on the board. Can you tell whether that is indicative or imperative? No. It could be either one. If I said, uh, Bella, write your name, what is that? That would be imperative. But if I said, uh, Bella writes her name, that's what? Indicative. Indicative. So in English, you can't really tell just based on a word whether it's indicative or imperative. In Hebrew, you can't either. You, all, you have to figure that out by the what? Context. Context. Same thing in English, right? Um, Greek, though, which is what Peter's writing in, okay? Greek, which is what Peter's writing in, the verb by itself you can look at 
and you can tell if it's indicative or imperative. The word ending is different. And what he does in chapter uh, 1, verses 15 and 16, I think is super interesting. Because he uses this Levitical refrain, and it says, um, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And this is your imperative. Be holy. But then we transition into uh, verse 16, and it says, Since it is written, and then he quotes from Leviticus 11.14, and says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And guess which one this one is? Imperative or indicative. So two major points off of this that I think are super important to just kind of like throw out to you guys really quickly. Number one... Peter's reading of Leviticus is very different than the way that we typically approach Leviticus. We usually approach Leviticus and we say uh, it's a book filled with what? Commands and laws. But whenever Peter quotes Leviticus 11.44, he reads it as an indicative, as God simply saying, not commanding, but simply saying, you will be holy. So, Here is something that's really fascinating about Peter. His reading of Leviticus changes Leviticus from a book filled with commands to a a book filled with promises. As Peter reads Leviticus, and as he's teaching you how to read Leviticus, he says, read it as a book of promises that God has made to you. Through Leviticus, God looks at you and says, You will be holy. That's something that he is promising to produce in your life. He is promising to make you into a holy person who can stand before his presence, who can be with him forever. And so that's kind of point number one is um, this text in Peter should completely like if you are doing a Bible in a year plan next year and Bible in a year plans go to Leviticus to die. One of the ways that you can prevent that happening and one of the ways that you can make Leviticus into something that is very special, I think, to you is as you read through it, recognize that those commands have a double meaning. They are commands being given to you, but there's also a promise that's inherent in them because God is promising to make you into a person who's holy and blameless and above reproach before Christ. That's one thing that I think is really important to get out of this. Another thing that I think is important to get out of this is notice which one is based on which one. Be holy, Peter commands you, because God has said you shall be holy. The command is based on the promise. The reason that Peter is giving you the command and thinks that you can keep it and expects you to keep it is because God's promise 
is underneath it. God has said that he will make you into a holy person. So with confidence, Peter thinks you can pursue holiness. You could say it this way. The imperative is built on the indicative. Okay? The command that God has given you is not something that you can fulfill in and of yourself. How holy are we? Un, right? A command that we can't do on our own. But it's not that the indicative is built on the imperative. It's not do the imperative and then the indicative will be true for you. But instead, the, the imperative is built on the indicative. God has made a promise to you and said, I will make you holy. And because you are empowered with that promise, because you know God's promise to you and his, his work in your life that he has sworn to do, Peter says, now with boldness and now with wholeheartedness, you can pursue holiness. So these are, these are I think, very important points. And he's writing to these people who are perhaps very, um, very tired. Perhaps they've suffered a good deal. Maybe in their trials and tribulations, they've said, I don't feel like I can make it. I don't feel like I can do it. And this is a way that Peter steps in and speaks to them to give them encouragement. One of the most um, kind of theologically intriguing bits of 1 Peter comes in the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2. Um, I mentioned before, Peter is writing to churches that are largely... What ethnicity? Gentile. Gentile. And Peter in 1 Peter 2 says some very intriguing stuff to these Gentile Christians. Now, in these Gentile churches, are there probably, um, is there probably a Jewish present too? Yeah, probably some. Yeah, probably some, but probably a minority. Peter's writing to them as a Jewish Christian though. Um, But I want you to listen to the language that he uses to describe Gentile Christians in 1 Peter 2. Starting verse 4 with me. As you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a what? What is a spiritual house? What's a synonym for that? Church. You yourselves are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy, holy priesthood. Um, to offer what? Still in verse 5. Yeah. That's killing me. <laughs> Just start like harmonizing with <laughs> For it stands in Scripture Behold, I'm lying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a what? Chosen race. Chosen race. What else? Keep going. The royal priesthood. Yeah. The people for his own possession. 
holy priesthood, uh, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession. Oh, is that what that is? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's pause for just a second and look at this. Um, If I were to say, um, in the Bible, there is a group of people and God calls them a temple, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifices, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, you would probably respond and say he's talking about what? Israel, or, or the Jewish people. And notice that Peter is writing to a primarily Gentile audience and is taking all of that terminology and applying it to them. What is the church? What is Israel? The way that the scriptures, you you guys remember the olive tree analogy that we looked at in Romans 11? The way that the scriptures seem to be talking about the relationship between Israel and the church is something like this. Um, Inside of Israel... Um, you had the true Israel, uh, or we called it the invisible Israel at times. And then you had all of Israel, the whole Israel. And Romans 9 said that there were people who were part of Israel, but weren't really part of Israel. What was that referencing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we could say it that way. Um, we had physical Israel, and we had spiritual Israel. And Israel is descended from what man? Abraham. So as it relates to Abraham, physical Israel are his actual descendants. Spiritual Israel are the people who what? Yeah, they have his faith. They share in his faith. Which group is really God's people? Spiritual Israel. Is there a sense in which God has set the entire nation apart as his people? There is. There's a sense in which he set apart the entire nation as his people. But are they his people the same way they're his people? No. The true people of God, the um, the true spiritual... Israel, the Israel who is circumcised in heart, are the people who have faith. Just because you're born of Abraham, does that mean that you are a part of, of God's people, that you really belong to him? No. And remember, and, and Jesus went so far in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, and he looked at the Pharisees and said to people who were physically descended of Abraham, you're not children of Abraham. Your children of who? Your father of the devil. Yeah. 
So the way that the scriptures seem to be talking about this is um, the people who are descended from Abraham get the title Israel. The true spiritual Israel are Abraham's true, true children who share his faith. But the scriptures promise that Abraham would be the father of what? Many nations. So you have, um, you have Abraham, all right, and under him you have true spiritual Israel, all right. And in the Old Testament, the people who were in true spiritual Israel were primarily also descended from who? Abraham. Abraham. So in the Old Testament days, true spiritual Israel almost entirely was made up of Jews. But in New Testament times, is that the case? No. You have people who are being adopted into the family, or people who are being grafted in, if we want to use the language of Romans 11. All right? These are the same term. They're just two different ways of talking about it, two different analogies. And these people are? Gentiles. Gentiles. But whenever they have faith, are they really Abraham's kids? They are. So they're really part of what? True spiritual Israel. The true spiritual Israel are those who have faith like Abraham did, who believe in Christ. Um, Jesus was born from what nation? He was born from Israel. He was a descendant of Abraham. And we see all of this language in Scripture that you are in Christ. So if you are in Christ, you are in Israel. Or you could do the analogy this way. The church is called the what of Christ? The bride of Christ. Whenever you get married, you became a part of that other person's family. So, if you are married to Christ, then you have entered into the family of Christ, which is the family of Abraham, Abraham Israel. So, is it right for Israel language to be applied to Gentiles? Absolutely it is. And at the time when Peter is writing, there's still a priesthood standing in Jerusalem. And there's still a temple standing in Jerusalem. And there's still sacrifices being offered in Jerusalem. But who's the true priesthood? Who's the true temple? Who's the true children of Abraham? The church. So this is not replacement theology. Um, sometimes gets labeled that. That's not really true. It's not really that the church replaces Israel. It's that that true spiritual Israel in the Old and New Testament and the church, those terms are kind of equivalent. Okay. Um, so Peter, though, uh, you know, this is, this is language that I think confuses a lot of people. Um, we kind of have this idea, we already kind of know, like, okay, we're children of Abraham, we sang that song growing up, but then whenever we're trying to kind of flesh this out a little bit more, it can be something that confuses us a little bit, um, but it really seems to me like the New Testament's pretty clear on this language about how, how these relate and, and how this works. So, um, twice in First Peter, um, at the end of chapter 2 and at the beginning of chapter 4,
Um, Peter talks about um, how Christ is an example to us in suffering. Um, Somebody read chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. So if you're suffering and you're being mistreated, it says that Christ set you an example that you may follow in his what? Steps. Steps. Um, How did he respond whenever he was mistreated? People said mean things to him and he said mean things back, right? They cursed him and he cursed them back. They threatened him and then he turned around and threatened them back. Right? What did he do? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He did not revile in return. Yeah. And that's the responsibility given to the Christians who are suffering the way that Jesus suffered. Um, If you look down, somebody read verse 9 of chapter 3. So someone is being mean to you, doing evil to you, reviling, and you're supposed to what? Bless. Bless them. Or we can skip over. Um, let's see, where's it at? Oh, I said that was in chapter four. It's actually in chapter three. Um, How about this? Um, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, not if you're slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. When people are mistreating you horribly, be so kind and gentle and respectful to them that whenever they start slandering you to other people, people know that they're lying. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous person suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. And Peter's point there is, in the same way, you who are righteous suffer for the unrighteous. Continue living righteously when the unrighteous mistreat you. You see that Peter is presenting some very, very difficult ethics, isn't he? 
So this is that's what I want you to do. I want you to read through this this weekend, and come back, and um, we'll spend we'll spend a decent portion of class on Monday. And um, you ask questions and um, make sure that you write these down like we did last time. I had a few people not turn that in. That should be an easy grade. Um, Write down questions, write down comments, and then we'll do kind of discussion style uh, on Monday through 1 Peter, and then we'll get started with 2 Peter. Um, but, But pay attention to this. As you're reading through, remember that this is written to Christians who are facing pretty intense suffering and persecution, and try to be looking for ways that Peter is addressing that problem pastorally.